Martha Ann straight up goes to Andrew's cabin and drills in a peephole. It's not okay. Yeah. (laughs) Again, bold and independent. There we go. In the days before social media. Welcome to Page Count, presented by the Ohio Center for the Book at Cleveland Public Library. This podcast celebrates authors, illustrators, librarians, booksellers, literary advocates, and readers in and from the state of Ohio. I'm your host, Lauren Eileen Walter, the Ohio Center for the Book Fellow and author of the novel, Body of Stars. Today, we're going to discuss the American frontier, the rise and fall of a popular literary genre, women who hitchhike, secret codes devised to assist toward love affairs, and a lot more. So, you know, just our standard run-of-the-mill everyday podcast episode. But really, we're here to discuss Wyoming, a novel by Ohio-born author Zane Gray. I'm joined by two guests today, Don Boozer, the Ohio Center for the Book Coordinator and Manager of the Literature Department at Cleveland Public Library. Hi, Don. It's good to have you back on the pod. Hi. And also Lucas Freilich, the Program Coordinator at Wyoming Humanities, which houses the Wyoming Center for the Book. Lucas, thanks so much for being here. You know, we're excited to partner with another Center for the Book again for the podcast. So thanks for being here. Oh, yes. uh, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Always like to visit Ohio virtually or in person, but in this case, virtually is okay. Well, hopefully we'll have you here in person one day before long. Um, But until then, we are going to discuss the novel Wyoming. But before we dive into that, I have just some quick background information, which first of all, we are airing this episode on what would have been Zane Gray's 150th birthday. He was born Pearl Zane Gray in Zanesville, Ohio on January 31st, 1872. He was a dentist and a baseball player before becoming a novelist, which happened in part thanks to his wife, Dolly, who funded their first trips out west and who encouraged him to write. He authored more than 80 books in the course of his career, including more than 50 westerns, the genre he's most famous for and that he popularized. In the 1920s, Zane Gray was the best-selling American author and one of the first millionaire authors. At the time of his death in 1939, his publisher claimed that in sales, Zane Gray is exceeded only by the Bible and the Boy Scout handbook. I would say that for such a wildly popular author of his time, I have never honestly read a Zane Gray book. So the three of us here today have all read Wyoming. We're ready to talk about it. But Lucas, since you are joining us from the great state of Wyoming, I thought we could just start with a little bit from you. Can you share with us where you live and where you're from and what is it like in Wyoming right now? (laughs) Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I live in Gillette, Wyoming, which is in the northeastern part. And as we'll talk a little bit about the book later, but Aladdin, Wyoming was mentioned a few times and that's only an hour and a half from me, roughly. So and Moorcroft, Wyoming was also mentioned, which I get my hair cut there, which is only 20 minutes from me. So it's very exciting. And I say that not because Gillette's a small town. I just like where you get your hair done. You, know, you get your hair cut in a good place. You can't beat a good haircut. So <laughs> always go back to the classics. But yes, I uh, I live in an old feed store, largely. It's not a feed store anymore. I've converted it into a sort of a studio apartment. It doesn't have a bathroom, but that's okay. I just have to leave the building to go into another part of the same building to use the commode. Otherwise, uh, I have to leave my actual house where my bed is, travel a few feet in the snow today in particular to make it here. 
Nevertheless, it's very comfortable, super safe. I love it. So that's kind of my background uh, living in Wyoming. Uh, in the summer, it's a hobby farm, so we usually grow alfalfa. So we're loading up hay bales, uh, sometimes large round ones too. Depends on our mood and uh, how the grass is growing. But yeah, hobby farm, so there's nothing big. We don't make money. We just like doing it. <laughs> just what we do. <laughs> I would be curious to hear how you became the coordinator of the Wyoming Center for the Book. Oh, yes. Very good question. I am a professional. Yes, I do have a job besides just living off the land. <laughs> I don't know if the audio format could perceive my air quotes, but yeah. So I have a master's in history from the University of Wyoming, and I got a job with Wyoming Humanities to run the Museum on Main Street program through the Smithsonian. Kind of made sense. Historian, museums, it seems to be a good fit. But one thing led to another, and I got a full-time job, and the State Library of Wyoming no longer had the capacity to house the Center for the Book, so they gave it to Wyoming Humanities. And because I didn't have enough to do, they said, Lucas, you're going to take this on. I said, you bet. So here I am, less than a year later, still running the program. They haven't gotten rid of me yet. Things are going strong. <laughs> All right. What I love about this is I feel like maybe part of our conversation will be breaking down the myth of the West or stereotypes of the West. And I love that we're opening with you had to walk through snow in your converted feed store that does not have a bathroom and that you haul hay in the summer. So we're off to a great start. I'm here for it. I love it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I have to do that both ways in the wintertime, you understand. Uphill. Uphill. So, yeah, sure. Slightly inclined. Yeah. I feel like Zane Gray would probably respect your living situation. He might not feel that way about Don and, and me. But anyway, we'll, we'll get to Zane Gray as the man much later. I have a lot to say. But let's talk about Wyoming. So I found in my research, a famous line of criticism of Zane Gray, the source of it is unknown or uncertain, but Zane Gray himself apparently was very agitated by this. He recorded it in his diary. And it goes like this. The substance of any two gray books could be written upon the back of a postage stamp. So if, if we're going by that guideline, if you had to try to summarize the plot of Wyoming for someone who is unfamiliar with it so that it would maybe fit on a postage stamp, what would you say? Who'd like to try to take a stab at that? Girl goes out west, boy goes out west. They don't like each other. Then they do. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And I think that he used that storyline a couple other places too. So in other books, yeah, in other books or short stories, yeah. Yeah, he, I mean, he was so prolific and there was a time when he was making so much money that he was producing so many books because magazines were just buying them. I mean, it was common for him to publish a novel, a serialized novel, which was popular at the time, for thirty-five dollars or $40,000 in 19... 20s money. I mean, it's just why as a writer myself, I cannot even imagine. And then when the depression struck, and he had financial difficulties, and the publishers were clearly having financial difficulties, he was trying to write more to make money. And I know of at least one of his novels was rejected by a magazine because it was too similar to another one. So I can imagine 80 books, you're going to have some crossover. Um, anyway, Lucas, is there anything else you would like to add about the, the quick plot? No, just that I predicted early on before I started reading that this book sounded an awful lot like a Hallmark movie, like a Hallmark original <laughs> child yeah. movie. And I was correct. It was exactly yeah. like that. Yeah. Talk about cookie cutter. 
I almost got the idea that I was reading in black and white. You know, you, usually you try and visualize, you know, the scenes and things when you're reading. And I found myself thinking of like, you know, a black and white either TV show or a black and white movie or something like that. It really evokes its time, let's say. Yes. And so it was published originally as a serialized novel called The Young Runaway in 1932. It first was published as Wyoming, the novel in I think 53. But just to give a slightly longer than postage stamp description, it surrounds Martha Ann Dixon. We open in her point of view. She's about, I think, 19. Of course, her family wants her to get married and have a traditional life. And she does not want that. She wants adventure and freedom and to be on her own. So she lies to her beloved mother and sets off and hitchhikes alone. She takes a train to Omaha. So she hitchhikes from Omaha to Wyoming, just getting picked up by various characters along the way. On the other side, we also have the point of view of Andrew Bonner, who came from a wealthy family in New York City, who was struck by the the crash and the depression. So his family was losing money. He's kind of cut off by his father. But don't worry, he still has some secret money that he gets. And he travels out west and encounters Martha Ann along the road. Drama ensues. And then they end up coincidentally at the same ranch in Wyoming and... It's a kind of an enemies to lovers story. That's a kind of a rough summary of it. So one thing I thought we could do is to give our listeners an idea of what we each thought of the characters. If you had to describe each of them in just a few words, how would you describe them? We can start with Martha Ann, if you'd like. I would describe Martha Ann as ambitious, outgoing, and witty. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think the fact that she wants adventure and doesn't want to regular lifestyle and wants to, you know, sort of go out on her own. I thought it was interesting using the plot point of that she's going to visit her uncle in Wyoming. She at least has a destination in mind. It's not like she's just going out and random hitchhiking, but has an actual destination in mind. Yes, good point. She's going to secretly visit her. He's an estranged uncle. He had been estranged from the family. So she has, I don't think she's ever met him before. No, because I got the impression he was the adventurous one, you know, in the previous generation. And it's like, oh, it was sort of somewhat scandalous and all that sort of thing. I see that sort of the genetic trait sort of carried through. Yeah. Well, as we will learn later in the book, there are limits to a woman's independence and her freedom, definitely, in this time. I agree with how you described her, Lucas. I would also say she was very brave and independent and also proud, I think. She was very proud. Oh, yeah, proud. Which comes into the plot. Okay, so now let's turn to the other character, Andrew Bonning. How would you describe him? How does that line go, a cockeyed optimist? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I think I could see that. He has those sort of, you know, in some ways, the spoiled rich kid sort of, you know, undertone. And then he tries to sort of be a more of the West, so to speak, as the thing goes along. So, yeah, I had a long list of thoughts about him. And I would start with, I mean, of course, I'm reading this through a modern lens in 2022. But I think at any time, um, I would describe him as toxic, violent, judgmental, entitled, of course, privileged. Oh, and rageful, rageful. Don't don't hold back, Laura. Tell us what you really think. (laughs) Not a fan of Andrew Bonner. (laughs) Not a fan. I agree. I agree. Yeah. So let's just talk about, was there anything about the book that really struck you? Any favorite moments or notable moments for you in the book? Well, there's a few things, I suppose. So first, I have to say that a lot of the locations, like where Martha Ann's uncle's ranch was, is very accurate. Like I could probably find the area thereabouts. Uh, the only town I couldn't find was Randall, Wyoming, which if it ever did exist, it doesn't anymore. There's a Randall Avenue in Cheyenne, but there's no 
actual town of Randall. But the fact is, I thought I was kind of surprised how accurate the geography of Wyoming was. I thought, huh, well, what do you know? Uh, some of the names were a little different, but where the mountains were, everything is, well, that's the same. So I, I figured that was pretty good. Yeah. Is there actually a Sweetwater River? Uh-huh. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like a tributary to the Green River, which is much bigger. And there's a Sweetwater County, which is where a lot of this takes place nearby, not too far away from all that. Yeah. Yeah. Zane Gray traveled extensively. And I mean, he spent a lot of time away from home. He would leave his wife and children behind. His wife, by the way, really ran everything. She served as his literary agent, essentially selling all his manuscripts, negotiating with publishers. And she was his financial manager, accountant. She ran all their finances through the really good times and the really bad times, tried to rein in his spending. So she kind of ran things from home while he would spend, I mean, upwards of, I think, at least seven months a year, if not more, away from home traveling with his, I would refer to them as his harem of girlfriends and secretaries, but we can get to that all that later. But um, (laughs) so my guess would be, I'm sure he traveled extensively through Wyoming. So it's good to hear that it rang true to someone who is in Wyoming. I mean, I guess we can talk about that, about how Wyoming and the West in general is perceived. I marked some lines. Let me find one. Okay. So this is from Martha Ann. In her point of view, she's talking about going out west. To make a dream come true, a dream of lovely roads and bright colored hills, of dim horizons and purple ranges, and at last the longed for goal, the west. You know, that's like right on page one to kind of let us know that the west is this idyllic place. It's magical. It's where everything is different. Just the next page, Wyoming. It was the first time she had spoken that magic word aloud. Wyoming, how sweet it sounded, what untold promise the word held. We need sweeping music in here. I, know. It's like- I felt like I could hear it with some of the descriptions of the range and, and everything. Lucas, what did you think about how the West was described in this book or Wyoming specifically? So I really did get that impression of the West as continuing to be a place for new beginnings to begin anew. And living in Wyoming, it honestly doesn't feel that way all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a magical place, of course. Uh, There's a reason why I still live here. There is a certain calling to it. And I think Zane Gray did get that sense really well, uh, figured out that not so much in the beginning, but definitely once they were in Wyoming with Andrew and Martha Ann's experiences traveling to Wyoming, once they're in Wyoming itself, the scenery and the impact that all the space, that feeling of wholeness that you get is very unique. And I'd say that that was captured very positively. I will say the descriptions of the landscape and everything. I mean, now I'm curious to travel more out West. I really haven't done a lot of traveling out there. So I'm like, okay, this is enticing to come out and actually see those sweeping vistas and such. Yeah, Don, I wanted to ask if you've ever been to Wyoming. I have not, no. I've been a few times, but probably just the experience most people have. I know I spent a night in Cheyenne. I think I've been to Wyoming maybe three times, but I've driven across 80, of course, and stayed along the way. I've been to Yellowstone and so stopped in like Cody and and those spots, but kind of the typical places you would go if you're driving through or trying to go to Yellowstone. So I haven't explored the state in full. It just feels humongous. I mean, the state just feels it's so open and big in the mountains. I mean, it's gorgeous. It really is. It's endless. Yeah. So I mean, the descriptions just were very much spot on, especially the region in which they were located. It's very unique. Wyoming's such a big state. Everywhere that you mentioned, Laura, each environment's different. It's like you're in a different place every time. So Don, you and I are both from 
Pennsylvania originally. If you haven't spent a lot of time out West, did you either grow up or in general have any specific conception of the West or what it was like? I'm just curious how it entered your imagination. I think the whole idea of the West, it's definitely based on things like, you know, Western movies and Western TV series and that sort of thing. I mean, I I enjoy Western movies as much as anybody else, but it's such a mythologized version Mm -hmm. of the West that I think whenever you actually go out there and see it, one of my earliest memories is a trip we took to California and we went to Knott's Berry Farm and did the stagecoach tour of the Knott's Berry Farm and there was a holdup by some bandits and that sort of thing. So that sort of whole mythology of the West was ingrained in my brain, I think at like five years old. Yeah, definitely. And I would say for me, I grew up loving and riding horses. I got that interest from my mother. She had grown up always wanting to ride horses. She loved the Lone Ranger, I believe, and Trigger, the horse. She had a dog when she was a teenager named Trigger. She would talk about this when I was a kid. We would ride horses together, and she would talk about how her dream would be to live out west and have a farm or a ranch and have horses and just ride under the big open sky. And so I think growing up, I absorbed that where there's some part of me that maybe feels that that's my dream too. But I've been lucky enough, I have traveled out west and in Montana and looking at the landscape and how beautiful it is. And I'll talk about that with my husband, like, oh, maybe one day we could just end up out west and have horses. But then reality comes crashing in. I mean, horses are a lot of work and you can't just go take a (laughs) vacation when you have horses unless you're rich enough to have full-time help. So I'm like, It's pretty heavy. Yeah. My folks have horses and anytime they travel, I'm left with the responsibility of taking care of them, which is nice because my folks don't have to bring anybody in. But Otherwise, we have to get neighbors or someone to help out. Or Yeah. It's a lot, especially days like today. <laughs> I think that's one of the things you bring up, the horses and everything. That's one of the things I think that struck me right from the very beginning about Wyoming, the novel, was that it was so modern, for lack of a better way of putting it. There's cars, there's movies. Whenever I think of the West, you know, it's always the late 1800s, you know, early 1900s, and it's just horses and wagons and that sort of thing. And to have what's ostensibly a Western genre novel start out with somebody, you know, hitchhiking for cars and going to the movies and worried about the stock market and that sort of thing. It sort of took me aback whenever I first started reading it. I was like, oh, this isn't set in like, you know, 1889. Yeah. So I think Zane Gray, and of course, I can't speak to everything he's written because this is the only book of his that I've read, but he wrote a lot of contemporary Westerns of the time. And so this was definitely one of them. And he was writing at a time when I suppose the West was changing. But you could see it in his characters that Andrew Bonner does not want change. Zane Gray himself really didn't want progress and change. And by the time of his death, he thought the West, as he had known it, was gone, essentially. But you could see it in Andrew. I wrote down a line. There's one moment where he's exhibiting his famous judgmental nature, but he sees a Taurus drive by and he thinks to himself, drive on, mister. You represent what I have turned my back on. Speed, luxury, restlessness, idleness, high blood pressure, flesh pots of Egypt. And I find it interesting because Andrew Bonner is rich from New York and drove himself out there with a car he bought, and he ends up secretly having a ton of money to save Martha Ann's uncle's farm. So I just think it's funny. (laughs) Yeah, I will say that was a little spoiler alert for everybody. That was a little deus ex machina whenever like everything sort of like, ta-da. Yeah, yeah, I think we're okay spoiling this book. It's almost 100 years old. and (laughs) (laughs) Spoiler alert, indeed. And it was kind of when I was reading it, I think Lucas, you described it as a hallmark movie. And it's a romance too. And of course, Zane Grey, romance was a part of the West for him, both personally and in his books. 
I was thinking about it when I was reading. I was thinking, okay, Martha Ann and Andrew, they really despise each other, but they clearly are really attracted to each other. Obviously, they're going to end up in the end. But I find it interesting because Zane Grey was also such a rugged man of the West. He wanted to preserve these things of the West and his sportsmanship and outdoorsmanship as something very manly and that men do. Mm-hmm. But really, yeah. it's it's a romance novel, you know? Yeah, it really is. Yeah, exactly. Just another form of romance novel. I'm not disparaging romance novels. I'm just saying it's for someone right, right. who has oh, such yeah. an attitude yeah. of being so rugged and masculine. You know, it is interesting. But I did want to talk about the gender dynamics here with Martha Ann and Andrew. You know, there was a moment in the very beginning. Martha Ann is reflecting on her attitude about men. And basically, she's just not interested in men physically. There's even a line that perhaps as her mother and some of her friends claimed she was abnormal, talking about how she doesn't really want men to touch her. She wishes like, why can't we just be friends? Why do they always have to come on to me? I felt, oh, Martha Ann, I wish you were born 100 years later so that you could just (laughs) date a woman and get on with it. You know what I mean? Um, But did anything else strike you about Martha Ann and how she was able to move through the world or not move through the world? I was surprised. Yeah. When I went into reading this book, I did not anticipate a character like Martha Ann at all. I was really expecting a very more classic damsel in distress type figure, although that definitely happened. Just wasn't to the degree in which I thought it would be. The lens was a bit different. So I had to put away my own biases, I suppose, to read this, if I'm being honest. Some things didn't surprise me. I guess one of the things that really stood out was how safe it seemed to be. She was confronted a few times, but not as often as you would imagine. Yeah, let's talk about that because she hitchhikes alone as a, she's beautiful, of course, obviously. She's a beautiful 19-year-old single woman hitchhiking alone and picking up rides from men, couples. She is at one point warned not to take a ride from more than one man in the car. And of course, this was sort of shocking to me. I would never do this. Which actually, I wanted to ask you, have either of you hitchhiked? I did once when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah. When I grew up, by the way, I was always told that, oh, it's more common to hitchhike out west. Like, you just do that, you know, which I'm not sure. (laughs) It only happened once. It was with my dad. So it wasn't like a total weird moment. We just broke down in Wheatland and needed a ride in the town. Uh, Yeah, I've never officially hitchhiked. The closest I came was I was 22. I was in the Redwood National Forest in California. And it's a long story, but I was walking three miles alone along the main road, um, kind of a highway. And I was fine. It's just a long story. And while I was walking that way, determined to get to my destination, I would say five or six cars pulled over and offered me a ride, including just many men, single men. And I didn't take any of the rides. I was too afraid to. But I did have the sense that they were not being creepy. You know, they just thought, oh, here's a person walking. Why don't I just give her a lift? And so I remember thinking I could just do it and get in the car, but I couldn't. It was only three miles, so it was fine. But Martha Ann is, she is brave. She's like hiking through the middle of nowhere. It's getting dark. I was stressed out for her. Just, (laughs) (laughs) I agree. Yeah. I was so stressed. Now she does mention at one point, she's talking to someone and they're talking about the risks of hitchhiking. And she says, Who has ever heard of a hitchhiker being killed? It was a different time where, not that she had nothing to worry about, but, you know, I would be worried about getting chopped up into little pieces. And I think the thought of being murdered was not something she was worried about. That didn't even seem to enter her mind. I mean, it was more of like maybe assault and things like that, which actually happened in the story. Yeah, there's like two attempted assaults against her, including one where a man drives her down off into the woods and starts assaulting her. 
and she kicks the crap out of him. Yeah, it was exactly. glorious. It was very nice. Exactly. That was great. She was like overcome by rage and adrenaline, and she's kicking him so hard that blood is splattering inside the car. Amazing. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. And then sent another group of guys to beat him up again. That was also very good. Yes. Yes. She's truly a queen. I agree. I was very surprised because I started this knowing, okay, Zane Gray was of his time. I'm not expecting him in the late 20s, early 30s to have uh, a 2022 perception of women's rights, right? But I was surprised in the beginning how Martha Ann, she kind of eschews the traditional role of being a woman and a wife, and she wants to go explore, and she's doing this even at risk to herself. So I thought I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I was pleasantly surprised with that too. She was very much more independent and strong and had her own mind more than I expected in a story like this from from that time period. So now with that said, the end of the book. Okay, (laughs) two things I want to mention about the end. One is for any listeners out there who really don't want to read this entire novel, you can basically get the Cliff Notes version at the end when Martha Ann writes a letter to her mother recapping the whole book. (laughs) Entire book. What was up with that? (laughs) I wonder if that was a convention of the time. Did readers like that maybe? It was amazing. I mean, that was just something as a writer today, you just don't do. So she recaps everything. And then, you know, we have gone through this whole book where she has been independent and proud and all of this, like determined to be free. There are these wonderful lines when she talks about the idea of a 20th century girl marrying to be safe, settled, taken care of bunk. Who wants to be safe? And she just talks about, isn't there a man who can understand a girl's longing to be free, to have adventures, to find herself, to be let alone? You know, she's really progressive. And then at the very end of the book, I'm just going to spoil it. She has this little monologue. Okay. All this new modern century stuff is the bunk. Women cannot be as free as men. A girl is restricted. That is a good girl by her sex. She has a responsibility a boy does not have. She is the mother of the race. And if the race is to progress instead of retrogress, she has to hold herself more sacred than men do. So that was really rough to read. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah. It was such a letdown. Uh, disappointment. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I fully agree. I have a theory about this that we can talk about. Okay. So I know, Don, you looked up the case of Zane Gray's secretary at the time, Bernice Campbell. Yeah. Do you know anything about this, Lucas? I I don't. This is new. I didn't want to spoil it. This is brand new for me. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what I uncovered in my research, and we can try to guess what happened here. A really great biography of Zane Gray is called Zane Gray, His Life, His Adventures, His Women. When I first saw that title, I kind of laughed, but it's perfect. I mean, yeah, exactly. That's what he's about. And it's by Thomas H. Pauley, published in 2005. Okay, so first we have to talk about Zane Gray and his women. He was married. He loved his wife by all accounts. He stayed with her until the end. And she stayed with him. That's the important She stayed with him. (laughs) Now, she was aware of his many affairs, but we're not just talking affairs. We're talking he would travel for months at a time with this rotating cast of women who were kind of his secretaries sometimes or just his companions. And he spent his life hiding the reality, which was, of course, he was having affairs with all of them. The biographer discusses a completely unknown collection of photographs that I think Zane Gray himself took that leave no question to this matter. They are explicit photographs, sexual photographs of Zane Gray with the women. 
He devised a secret code so they could write these letters, and he would also write about his sexual exploits in a diary in his code. So he has like a secret sex code. Whoa. His wife knew about most of this. I've seen some mentions that, oh, she knew and it was an open marriage. They were before their time. There are details in the letters that she is not happy. He sometimes will complain to her when one of his girlfriends has the nerve to get married to someone else. <laughs> it's wild. I could talk about this for four hours. I got to move on. <laughs> By the end of this book, I was getting dizzy because we're nearing the end of his life. And there's still a rotating cast of women he's falling in love with and traveling with. I mean, so many. This is not just a couple affairs. This is like a pathological constant. I don't know how he had the energy. And that really surprised me with Martha Ann Dixon, too. I mean, to write such an independent-minded woman and all this kind of thing. I found it interesting knowing that about him and his background in real life. Yeah. It's like, were those the women that he wanted to have as his companion, that sort of thing? or The women he traveled with, they also loved the West. They loved outdoorsmanship. They loved riding horses. They sounded like amazing women that I would want to be friends with. So they were who he spent time with, but usually his novels were the opposite, where women were more confined to normal roles. And he did seem obsessed with kind of hiding his secret life. He didn't really talk about the women in his life much, partially to keep it a secret, but partially because these were women like him out there exploring, like out there doing it in the West. And he was preserving this notion of the West as a very masculine thing. Like this is for men. So it went against his interest to highlight these amazing independent women who were tough and strong and doing all this stuff. Yeah, with that as background, go ahead and tell us a story about his uh, his secretary. Yeah. He would often have secretaries first before this book, Wyoming, for 15 years, he had Mildred Smith, his lover and secretary. It sounds as if he may have taken some of her material they collaborated on some plays together, and when one of the plays did not get picked up, he just wrote it as a novel and sold it, of course, all under his byline. Now, we don't have any information about how much she contributed, etc. She also wrote a novel called Desert Bound. She was getting rejected by publishers. She had a lot of rumors. People would say, oh, she's just with Zane Grey. She didn't find a publisher. He took that novel and rewrote it, and I don't know what that means, and then he published it for a lot of money. So flash forward, Mildred finally leaves him. He now needs a new secretary, and he finds Bernice Campbell. He's not with her for very long, but she's, of course, young and attractive again. Bernice Campbell hitchhiked to Wyoming. She spent a year hitchhiking, and she kept diaries. And she told Zane Gray about her experience. And according to another biography, she gave him her diaries, told him she wanted to turn it into a novel. He, in turn, apparently helped her by talking to her about how you could turn this into a novel. Here's how you'd structure it. And then from the sources I can find, it says he took the material, reworked it, and he sold it to a magazine for $30,000, which would be $625,000 today. He only published under his byline, of course. Now, the interesting thing here is I think this is the only case that he had a contract with Bernice Campbell she would get 15% of the royalties, which I find really interesting because with all his affairs, I don't think he was going around handing out royalties for no reason. He then never, I guess, never paid her. And she sued him apparently for the money that she didn't get. And it was his wife who stepped in, who was very angry about this. His wife stepped in and renegotiated 
so that in the future, Bernice got 5% of the royalties and a car. <laughs> so that was all she got. And a typewriter. I think it was a typewriter too. <laughs> and a typewriter, which is kind of poetic. So I am so curious about this. I'm not saying he was a plagiarist who didn't write his own books. He clearly wrote tons of books. But I am so suspicious about this, especially since the hitchhiking parts of the book, which were my favorite. Martha Ann is so strong and her inner world. I was so impressed with Zane Gray with her inner world. And then we get to Andrew's point of view of women. And then we get to the end when Martha Ann is just completely switches. And I can't help but wonder if that first part was really Bernice Campbell's voice. Yep, exactly. That was fascinating. I, I had never heard that. And I didn't get that part in the biography. Whenever you uh, had let us know that you had done that research, I was like, oh, wow. It's just so complicated because, again, I'm not saying he didn't write any of the book. He was, as a writer, I was impressed just hearing how sometimes he would sit down and write 10,000 words in a day or write six chapters in six days. You know, there were times he worked really hard. So I'm not trying to say he didn't do that. But I do think reading about him, I got a portrait of a man who had a huge ego. He was very competitive. He wanted to be the best at everything, including fishing, by the way. He was obsessed with setting fishing records. He had drama (laughs) with fishing club members. I mean, it was really, really important to him to be the best and to be respected. He wanted that respect. And this was a time when women writers were not taken as seriously, especially if they were sleeping with Zane Gray. And I think it would have been really easy for him to lean on women who are editing his books, by the way, and and helping him with things and just taking it and then publishing it under his byline for all the money. Yeah, taking some from the top a little bit. I can definitely see that too. That makes a lot of sense, the connections. I was wondering as I was reading that letter at the end too, whether that was actually the way Martha Ann felt or whether that's she was telling her mother that that's the way she felt. I was holding out some hope for Martha Ann that maybe this was just what she knew her mother wanted to hear. So she would put that in the letter that she sent to her mother. I'm holding on to that. <laughs> That's your post-credit scene. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, should we go ahead and spoil the whole thing about what happens? Who wants to describe the final courtship between Martha Ann and Andrew? It seemed in the way it was written that Martha Ann was the one who finally decided, you know, she went into Andrew's cabin and ended up sitting on his lap and giving him a kiss and that sort of thing. But she was like looking at him through the knot hole in the wall for a while and like trying to work up the nerve. And that was a little weird. That was a little voyeuristic, Martha Ann. I feel like I'm being very harsh on the men like Andrew and also Zane Gray. Martha Ann straight up goes to Andrew's cabin and drills in a peephole. It's not <laughs> oh, okay. <man>. Yeah. <laughs> Again, bold and independent. There we go. In the days before social media. <laughs> How else to- she couldn't stalk his Instagram. So right. <laughs> not that I excuse that. That was pretty dark. But Andrew Bonner in the lead up to this, he sometimes picks her up and forcibly carries her places. He forces a kiss with her when he's basically telling her, oh, yeah. I bet even I could steal a kiss yeah. from you and get away with it. And she's like telling him, I hate you. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> At one point, he kidnaps her, carries her to his cabin, dumps her on his bed. I was like, oh, no. Well, there's a suggestion. And she's even saying, what are you going to do with me? And he 
then proposes marriage and she rejects him. (laughs) I had three specific things in this where I had put OMG on the post-it note in the book. But one of them was that quote where he says, you know, I wish to God I were beast enough to maul you good and plenty. I was like, whoa, dude. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. (laughs) Wild. It's wild, wild stuff. You know, one of their central conflicts through the book is when he finds her on the road when she's hitchhiking earlier in the book, he's convinced that she's a flirt who like, I mean, I don't know at the time, I suppose just being alone with men and kissing them would be bad enough. But he imagines these scenarios where she goes off alone with men and I guess hooks up with them, whatever that would mean. This is all in his mind. And he works himself into a rage over this. It's awful. He's terrible. Right. It, that worked me into a rage, right? Because I was thinking, yeah. just because she's alone, you just make these assumptions that that's right. what she's doing. And she was being attacked by these guys, too. Like, was it like she <laughs> brought it on? It's very victim shaming going on there. A hundred percent. I mean, he finds her at one point riding horseback with another man, his kind of rival. And he's so enraged, he beats the crap out of the man and pulls out his gun and almost kills him. I mean, it is, yeah, that's kind of what I more would have expected from a book of this time. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? So it was sort of an emotional roller coaster of reading this. Yeah. (laughs) That's a good point. Yeah. Emotional roller coaster is a good way to describe it. But of course, she decides she loves him. And of course, they've both been in love with each other. I do want to say one male character who was really sweet and wonderful was Jim, who's kind of a ranch hand. And he's so nice to Martha Ann. And he says to her, just want to read something he says to her. You ought to have been a boy. And instead, you're the sweetest girl that ever was born to vex men. It's tough, honey, when a girl can't lift her eyes or smile without some fool feller thinking she wants him to grab her. Well, that's sure tough. You know, he's empathizing with what it must be like for her. She just wants to live her life. And these men are trying to paw her or blame her for being a hussy, basically. (laughs) I fully agree about Jim. But one of the things that surprised me about him was whenever he tries to uh, hang that guy for like rustling the cattle and he basically is like torturing him and like pull up the rope and the noose. And I'm like, whoa. And then they're like, okay, never mind. You can go ahead and go back to your ranch. (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely capturing a romanticized version of the West, right? This idea of bring the law into our own hands type. In his defense, I think he said he wasn't going to hang him for real. Right. Um, so, you know, so it's fine, right? It's fine. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's just fine. Yeah. 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 So there is definitely cattle wrestling in this book for anyone who who's into that. Oh, and I do want to say one other thing, since I clearly despise Andrew Bonner. I think that's clear. <laughs> but the one moment when he maybe won me over was near the end. He secretly, with his secret money, buys Martha and and anonymously buys her a beautiful horse and a beautiful saddle and delivers it to her. And she's so pleased. And as a horse lover myself, I love that he gave her a horse, which is a symbol of freedom in the West, you know, instead of a really pretty dress or some kind of jewelry. So that was the first time I thought, oh, maybe he's redeemable in a little bit. (laughs) If he's going to keep me in beautiful horses, then maybe I'll just put up with it. (laughs) (laughs) Put up with this. It was initially given to her anonymously. Which was also something in his favor, I guess. Yeah. I guess. We'll yeah. give it to him. Yeah, well. well, even a broken clock is right twice a day, <laughs> as they say. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. And then, of course, at the end, she comes to him and says she does want to marry him. And the novel seems to revolve around his perception of her, of whether he's right or wrong. At one point, he even thinks to himself, oh, basically, I'm not quoting, but basically, oh, maybe I'm wrong that she wasn't 
such a little flirt with all the men. Basically, she's just naive. So it's kind of like he's saying, maybe she's not a slut. She's just not very bright. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Which, is Which is not great. Not much better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, uh, but the book ends with her like jokingly telling him never to misjudge her again. So it's interesting. It's almost as if the whole book is about reputation, like her reputation in his eyes. Yeah. Again, it's his perspective, right? It's yeah. her reputation based off of his opinion. We talked about, you know, Zane Grey and his interesting life, let's say. It is interesting to see how pivotal he was to that whole genre. I mean, he was definitely one of the if you bring up, you know, Western authors, it's who's the uh, the author there in uh, that is known in Wyoming is for writing the Virginian. Oh, yeah. Owen Wister. I read that Zane Gray was influenced by him and then Zane Gray just took it and ran with it. Yeah, we in Wyoming are still suffering the consequences of Owen Wister's work. It's both positives and, of course, the negatives that come with that. I feel like in a lot of ways we're still tied down by that version of the West. Can you give us an example for readers who might not or listeners who might not be familiar with his work? Yeah. So the Virginian is essentially a romp through the West. It's about all I'm going to say about it, because it is worth your time if you do want to read it just to have a true understanding. The mythological part of it, what they did to the state of Wyoming is just this idea that if you're in Wyoming, you're self-sufficient all the time. You don't need help from anybody. You can just do it. And to a degree, that happens because we're a very remotely populated state. But because of that myth, it has pushed back against any sort of help from other states or the federal government or even from the state government. It's like, ah, oh, we don't need that. Like, well, we kind of do, right? So that's the negative part of it. So there's the two sides of this coin that the Virginian has injected into Wyoming. And it's just kind of bred into the culture, uh, the code of the West, this whole idea of do unto you, do unto others, very much is still alive. And that has the positives and negatives, of course. Yeah, and that really is part of the whole mythology of the West, too. I mean, we talked about it there a little bit at the beginning. That is sort of the, you know, the lone cowboy out on the range and he has his can of beans and his campfire. <laughs> that's that, that's, that's the, whole, the whole thing. And I find it so interesting, even with things like the Buffalo Bill Wild West show and things like that. We have a couple of posters from that in our collection here at the Cleveland Public Library. And it's just so interesting that by the time those shows came around, I mean, the West really wasn't, quote unquote, the West anymore. But it was this consistent effort to try and keep that mythology going and to sort of capitalize on it commercially. Which we still face today yeah. in Wyoming. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's all over the place. It's very much a part of the American heritage, too, I think. Pull yourself up by your own bootstrap sort of thing and, you know, self-reliant and manly men and yep. that sort of thing. So Zane Grey was not the first American author of Westerns, but he made the genre so popular. He was publishing so much. And then, as I learned in his biography, paperback books were not really a thing in the 20s when he was publishing. So his work first appeared, I think, in 1939 was when his books started being published as paperbacks. And from there, it just exploded. So after his death, in I think through the 50s or 60s, stores would be packed with paperbacks of Zane Gray books because he had so many. Um, and also, I didn't mention the films. That's a whole other part of his career. I think over 100 films were made from his books. And this was a time when 
the studios would make a lot of B films and have the double features, especially in the depression to kind of try to keep people coming to the theater. And so just tons of Westerns, most of them, I don't think we would really know today, but one of his books was made into a film that was the first film ever shot at Monument Valley. So before oh. Stagecoach. So that's really interesting. Yeah, that's, that's wild. And then when Westerns as a film genre became really popular in the 50s, I guess producers kind of ignored Zane Grey novels. I don't really know why, but they weren't making movies based on his books and the genre kind of took off from there. And now to the point where, as far as books are concerned, Westerns are not very popular and it's really been in the decline. But do either of you have any books you'd like to recommend for our listeners, maybe contemporary Westerns or Lucas, any books about Wyoming that you'd like to recommend? Yeah, there's a few nonfiction. I can't tell you any fiction stuff. No, nonfiction's great. Wyoming Range War by John W. Davis takes place in Johnson County, depicts a very infamous event in Wyoming's history involving sheep herders and cattle and a lot of uh, disrupting, a lot of politics. And it was a literal shootout. In fact, you go to Buffalo, Wyoming today, you can find outside their ranch where the shootout took place and the bullet holes are still there in a lot of the barns. So very, very worth your time. And a memoir by Mary Flitner called My Ranch Too, which gives a great contemporary snapshot of ranch life. Although the methods and techniques and technology has changed, the basic idea of ranching has remained very much the same. It's a very remote, hard work, constant 24-7 job. So very much worth your time to get to know Wyoming in a slightly different way. What about you, Don? Do you have any recommendations? For the West, I would say that Mary Doria Russell's two books that she wrote about Doc Holliday and the other one about Wyatt Earp are done really well. And especially Epitaph, the one about Wyatt Earp, takes him from the OK Corral and then actually moves through his life to whenever they were making movies about his life and that sort of thing. So it's a really interesting fictional account of that whole thing because the OK Corral, that's part of the whole mythology of the West almost. And the fact that it actually happened is like, oh, look at that. And I would recommend for a contemporary novel about an independent woman going out west would be The Hearts of Horses by Molly Gloss. So I recommend that. And more recently in 2020, C. Pam Zhang published How Much of These Hills is Gold. And that was very well reviewed and got a lot of attention. So I'll link to all of those books in the show notes as well. Yes. Yes, that's a good one. Good recommendation. Yeah. Well, we will wrap up in a minute. We're running out of time. And I hope I didn't take up too much of it by complaining about Zane Gray. But is there anything we didn't get to that either of you would like to make sure we bring up? I should say that I did not appreciate how Zane Gray depicted Native Americans very well. Yes, we didn't get to that. Do you want to briefly summarize? I mean, they were barely in the book. It's just that on the peripheral was almost enough negativity. Uh, I can't remember if it was the first incident Martha was attacked or the second, but that was clearly implied that the man who did that was indigenous and to a degree Uh, the references to the powwows and things like that and of course having gone to college in black hill state university he spent a lot of time in the black hills it was kind of interesting that they were depicted as this horrible godforsaken place that native people are going to kill you if you go up there which is such a terrible thing to say 
and also race in the novel. I mean, it's mostly everything's ignored. But there is one point when Martha Ann is picked up on the road by a black couple. When she sees who it is picking her up, she swallows her surprise. But she gets in the car and they have a very pleasant, nice drive. Um, at one point, she, which I found just interesting, she specifies when she's arguing with Andrew about her own independence, she says, I'm over 18 and I'm white and I'm like free to do what I want. So I thought that was just, you know, notable that she's referencing that. That was one of my OMG uh, post-it notes in the book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, she wasn't wrong, right? Exactly. At that time. No, exactly. I did read in his biography that Zane Gray, he did write, I think more than one, but his first book where he wrote it in the point of view of a Native American. And let's just say it was not great. It sounds like he did zero either research or soul searching of how to do that. It wasn't great. So he was really criticized for that. And he did absorb a lot of criticism through his career. But he also became extremely rich before the Depression when he did struggle. But thank you for bringing that up. I think that's important. I will say I got a kick out of his attempt to do the dialect, the language that people were speaking. It was hard to read with all the apostrophes and that sort of thing. But after a while, I sort of let my mind go and I would just sort of, you know, read it in that drawl in, in my head. And I was like, I doubt if this is very accurate, but it's kind of fun to like let it go through your head. The one line I have here was like, while we Wyoming folks are particular about our brands. <laughs> <laughs> that pseudo southern accent exactly. just really rubbed me the wrong way. I thought, do we really sound like this? And I just, <laughs> I could not, I just, it was awful. And as I don't think we ever sounded like that. But it is true, we are very particular about our brands. That is absolutely <laughs> true. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, I have a quote I would just like to leave as a sort of a parting gift from the Zane Gray biography by Thomas H. Pauley that I just wanted to share to kind of wrap up Zane Gray's career and influence. When Gray left for the West in search of new direction for his writing career, the Grand Canyon was not yet a national park. Arizona was not yet a state and the Western was not a recognized genre. His writings have nurtured and still sustain a belief that life in the West is somehow different and better, that it offers open spaces, breathtaking vistas, and untapped possibilities, and that the last best place still exists somewhere out there. So on that note, I think we will close Wyoming. But thank you both so much for being here, Lucas and Don. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for reading this book with me. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, I had a blast. Yeah, it was great to see you, everybody. And I guess we say happy birthday to Zane Gray. Page Count is presented by the Ohio Center for the Book at Cleveland Public Library. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and leave a review for Page Count wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more online or find a transcript of this episode at ohiocenterforthebook.org. Follow us on Twitter at CPLOCFB or find us on Facebook. If you'd like to get in touch, email us at ohiocenterforthebook at cpl.org and put podcast in the subject line. Finally, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Laura Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks for another chapter of Page Count.